Well, I'm excited about this new series uh, that we're kicking off. In fact, uh, yesterday I was going through this, uh, uh, going through the sermon at home like I normally do, and I kind of talk it out loud, and, and my wife was so endearing to me to kind of point some things out in my sermon I should change or uh, make it better, and I often uh, do that with her, and uh, she had a big impact on this sermon, so I really appreciate uh, Janelle and her input. And uh, as we kick off this series, let me pray for us. Father God, we give thanks for this morning and thank you for your presence um, in our community. And God, we give uh, thanks for what you're doing. And uh, for us as a church community to open our eyes and to see uh, uh, your hand so evident in so many ways um, in this church. And as we look at 2015 and what you have for us to make a difference, to make a dent, uh, in this city, in the surrounding areas. And we do that for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Well, we live in a time, uh, we live in a time, I think, in a culture where excuses are, are quite prevalent. Uh, it seems like uh, excuses, and I think each of us have, have experienced that or do that, where we use excuses to rationalize or to justify things. It seems like it's a, it's a trend in our culture. And yet when we look at the Bible, the Bible uh, doesn't use excuses. In, in fact, the Bible talks about this, this better life, this life that we have available in Jesus Christ. And excuses aren't really a part of that. So I thought for 2015, these, for these first four Sundays in January in 2015, is for us as a church community to look at these sort of excuses and worn out phrases like, I don't have time, or I don't have it in me, or it's not my fault. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this excuse of things will never change. How many of you thought that or said that before? Okay, there's five of us honest here at church this morning. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, seven. Uh, but we, yeah, I think all of us have this sense of, but things will never change, that, that, that excuse. And, and I know I've experienced that in my own life at times. Uh, I, I remember in a relationship, in a particular difficult relationship with an immediate family member, it has seemed like month after month, year after year, things weren't going to change. And I kind of came to that sort of conclusion and, and, and I use that as an excuse to kind of justify my attitude and my behavior towards that family member when it came to holidays, when it came to the holidays and getting together. And I realized my attitude, my behavior that was coming out towards them was not good. And I, I needed to change that. And I also remember at a, at a certain point in my relationship with Jesus Christ that I, I expected some, some things to change. I've been praying about it. Uh, we, we're, you know, was surrendering myself to the Holy Spirit, doing a number of things. I just thought things would change, and they weren't. And I, I kind of came to that conclusion with my relationship, like, God, things aren't going to change. In fact, they'll, they'll never change. I'll just be this way. And, and it can be frustrating. And I think each of us have experienced that in some way, that things will never change. What has it been for you? What has it been for you when, when it comes to this excuse of, but things will never change? Maybe it's your marriage, where you and your, your spouse have been arguing and fighting. And it seems like almost every time that things get so heated that, that a normal conversation all of a sudden just kind of shoots off into a, into a fierce argument and, and you get very defensive. 
And there's this sense inside you like things will never change. It's been happening so much. Or perhaps it's the opposite of the spectrum where, where you and your spouse are so distant. There's no connection. There's no intimacy that there isn't any arguments, that there isn't any kind of debates, um, that you're really not married, so to speak. You're more like roommates. What is it for you? Things will never change. Maybe it's in your dating life. Maybe you're single and it's in your dating life. And there's over three million singles in the state of Minnesota. And you can't find one sane, normal, single person, right? all, All you're asking for is just a normal person that showers at least once every three days. It's not asking a lot. And, and yet, things aren't changing. And especially during the holidays, friends that I have that are, that are single, that, that, that you experience loneliness, and you come to that sort of conclusion, things will never change. Or perhaps it's in your job place. Like a good friend of mine, she'd been working for this company for a number of years, and, and uh, her boss is demeaning and disrespectful, and the work environment is tense, and, and she's been there for a number of years. And, and she's gotten to this conclusion that things will never change. And, and as a result, her personality, this formerly warm and friendly person, has changed. And, and in, in fact, we've noticed that she has been more pessimistic, more bitter, more angry. And she shared with us, things will never change at my workplace, you know, no matter what I do, things will never change. What is it for you? And what we want to do is look at this and, and kind of buck this trend. If that's something that's prevalent in our society, excuses and these kind of worn-out phrases like things will never change, then we want to change that. What might it look like for you and I to kind of change the status quo um, under the guidance of the, of the Bible? How can we change the status quo? And what I want to do this morning is to look at this phrase, things will never change, and actually recommend for us as a community, both individually and also as a church community, to take two steps this morning. The first step is personal responsibility. I think that's very straightforward, and I'm just going to spend a brief amount of time on that because I think that's common sense. And the second one is looking at the greatness of God's power that's available to us in Christ Jesus, something I think me and many of us often forget, okay? So the first step, taking responsibility. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. And we're going to spend time in Galatians and then also in the next book to the right, Ephesians. Uh, both letters written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. And in Galatians 6, 5, what I, what I love about this particular verse is that it just outlines it very straightforward for us. That as we live life, that we have a role to play, that we have responsibility in the conduct of our lives. Chapter 6, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the slides behind me. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. You know, there's nothing really deep about that verse. It's very straightforward. We have responsibility for the conduct of our lives. And there's scores of verses like that where we have responsibility. We have responsibility on the circumstances and the activities of our lives, that we have a role to play. Yes, God does. He is sovereign and he has power, but each of us, 
He has created you with unique talents and gifts and personalities and passions that you can make a difference, that things can change, and that you have a role to play. You actually have a responsibility, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. I love in the um, beginning of the Bible, and probably one of the most well-known phrases in the Bible is in Genesis, in the beginning. I think a lot of us have heard that in different ways, in the beginning. It describes the six days of creation. In the, beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first day. And then on the second day, he separated the light from the darkness. And if you fast forward in Genesis chapter 1, it gets to the sixth day where God creates humanity. And it says that God created man in his image. And then it says, he stood back, looked at man, and said, I think I can do better. And then he created woman. And all the women said, amen, yeah, yeah. Now we're, now we're preaching. That's the CCV, uh, the Craig Case version. So anyways, but we, when, we fast, when we get into chapter 2 of Genesis, though, we find out what it is to be human. And a particular verse that has stood out to me, we won't turn to it right now, but it actually really impacted my worldview in my theology about 10 years ago. And, it, and I've read Genesis a number of times over the last 20-some years. And for some reason, I never really saw this verse. But it's an amazing verse where uh, God has the angels bring the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. To see what he would name them. Evidently, humanity has a role to play in this world. That things can change. A very significant role, I would add, that we have a role to play that we see with Adam and naming the animals is that we can make a difference on the circumstances and the events of our lives and also in human history. So when it comes to this excuse of things will never change, we have a responsibility. We have an opportunity. We have a role to play that we can actually make a difference. That we're not a robot, that we're not simply living out a pre-planned strategy, but you, actually you have an opportunity to step in and, like Adam, name the animals, to make a difference, to make a change. I have an acquaintance of mine who actually disagrees with that. And there was a particular time where his marriage was going south very fast, and his son was going in a really bad direction. And he kind of threw up his hands in resignation, and he, he said, this must be God's will for my life. This must be God's will. Now, God, God does have a will, and it's mysterious, and it's hard to understand at times. And certainly, God can use bad things like that for uh, uh, development and growth and such. But for my acquaintance to use God's will as an excuse that things will never change, and this is just going to happen, um, is, is, I think, sidestepping the responsibility that he could step in and make a difference. And not simply to accept what was going on, that he could try. Each of us are responsible for our own conduct, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. The next step that I want us to take uh, besides personal responsibility, and I want to spend the rest of my message on this, is really coming around this. And if you're new to the Bible, this might actually be a new thought for you, but, um, and I think it's a transformational thought, is realizing the resurrection power, the greatness of God's power that is available to you right now in Jesus Christ. It's very profound. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn. If you're in Galatians, go right to your right. Right to your right. 
uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. In Ephesians chapter 1, um, if you haven't really read the Bible, I encourage you to read this section because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is just laying out blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. He's saying, you have all these things in Christ. You're adopted and, and, and you're given the, the, the inheritance of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he just lays out these blessings after blessings after blessings. And then kind of like the apex or the climax of chapter 1, I think, is in verse 19 is where Paul writes this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power, verse 20, that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because of God's great power. It's, it's amazing to think about that that we have available to us this resurrection power, the same power that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. Paul is making a staggering claim here. It is available to you right now in Christ. Not based on your efforts. It's not based on how you look. It's not based if you have your, right, your life kind of like so-called put together. It's not based on how many verses you've memorized. It's not based on your church attendance. Okay? It's available to you right now in Christ. It's a staggering claim for us to understand that. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and what became of him after his resurrection shows the greatness of God's power toward us right now in this life. If there's a, three words that I want you to remember from this part of the message is resurrection power now. Resurrection power now. And I think that the, the vast majority of us don't really believe that. We, we might think that's actually figurative, like this is some sort of idealistic or some sort of religious hype. In fact, our, our response in our minds might be, the Bible says that, but I haven't seen that. I haven't experienced that in my life. It sounds vague and it sounds theoretical. It doesn't correspond to experience, and you instinctively feel like this part of the sermon is fiction, like you're watching the Hobbit movies or something. Like this is fiction. And I don't blame you for feeling that way because I felt that way at times too. When you, when you look at a verse like this, is it real? Is, is, is this fact and not fiction? And I think there's reasons for our, our disbelief. And I just want to um, briefly go over these. I think there's reasons why we might say, but I haven't really experienced that or I really don't believe that in the Bible. Number one, I think first reason why we don't believe that or we have disbelief rather is that we hide. We hide. And I think very much like Adam and Eve, um, when they sinned and God was coming to meet with them, they hid and covered themselves because of their shame, because of their embarrassment. And God asked the question, where are you? It's the first question listed in the Bible. Where are you? I think it's a, it's a question that God is asking you today. Where are you? When it comes to really understanding the greatness of his power found in Christ Jesus, maybe we don't experience that. Maybe we don't really believe in that because we are hiding. And God wants to call us out and to join him in his work here. And where God says to us, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be shameful. As Paul says in Romans, there's nothing that you could ever do that could separate you from my love. 
And God says to us and to you today, I am right here. I'm with you right now. I think the second reason why we don't really believe in this greatness of God's power, this resurrection power now, is because we don't see what his power is doing right now in this universe. I don't think we're fully aware of the magnitude of the demonic power, the kingdom of evil that is coming at us in our lives at all times. Yes, even in this modern scientific age, if you feel safe, you will be thrilled with your protector, God, only if you know the deadly power of the enemy he is holding back. Because Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God hates your life. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your job. And he's doing everything in his power to destroy you. The Bible is very clear about that. And if we were to lift up the curtain of the invisible and we were able to actually see, we would be amazed. We would be moved by the power of God that is holding back this demonic power that is happening right now in this world. The greatness of God's power that is holding that back and defeating it is profound. I think the third reason why we don't really believe in this resurrection power now is because we understand Jesus' sacrifice as a transaction. And what I mean by that is this, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross, gave his life as a sacrifice, and because of that, we'll live in eternity in heaven. And it seems like a transaction, and each of us are used to transactions in the world we live in, especially if you return a gift item after uh, Christmas. Now, we understand transactions in our consumerist world, and I think oftentimes we see the sacrifice of Christ in the same kind of lens. Because he died on the cross, because of that, I will go to heaven when I die. And that's certainly true, but it misses the depth of the sacrifice. Jesus Christ gave his life for you, for you, so that you would belong to him in the kingdom of heaven. Your body, your soul, and your spirit. That you would belong to him. And that he paid for you for, with a price. Okay. Now moving at, past these reasons for our disbelief in the greatness of God's power, um, I find it really helpful to remember the greatness of God's power, to remember what happened in this resurrection power now. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to start with verse 20 and just look at, I'm just going to kind of go verse uh, by verse here from uh, verse 19 through 21 and just make some comments along the way. The the first thing I want to highlight for us to remember and recall um, the greatness of God's power in this resurrection power now is number one, is that God raised Jesus and broke the power of death. God raised Jesus and broke the power of death. Look at verse 20. The power of God toward us now is like the great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. And the point here is is that the power of death is broken for all who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy, death, is defeated. For Paul, when he writes this, the death of Christ was the death of death. Death, where is thy sting? Death had been defeated. The sting was removed. And this poisonous event, formerly, of death 
was now a pathway for us in Christ Jesus to paradise. That's very profound. Death was swallowed up by the victory in Christ Jesus. Next, as we come to understand this resurrection power now, and to break this trend, to buck this trend of these worn-out excuses of things will never change, and remembering what's available to us in Christ Jesus. Next is that God seated Jesus at his right hand and you with him. It's an extraordinary claim. God seated Jesus at his right hand and you with him. Let's try to get your mind around that. Look at verse 20, the last part. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly, in the heavenly places, and he's talking about Jesus. Now, when you fast forward now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes this, God raised us up with him. So when this resurrection power happened and raised Jesus Christ from the dead and, and, and put him in the heavenly realms, that he raised us, us, us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The greatness of God's power that's available to you. He seated you in the heavenly realms. And when you actually look at the original language of that, it's present tense. It's not past tense. It's not, it's not future tense. It happened right now when you accepted Christ into your life. And it's available to us. The power that took Jesus from death and put him eternally in God's presence put you there too and keeps you there. All right. Next. As I fathom and as I understand the greatness of God's power, this resurrection power now, now is that God set Jesus over all evil in demonic powers. Look at verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 1. God set Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. The power towards you now is a devil-defeating power. A devil-defeating power. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he was exalted over everything, over the hosts of hell. They are a defeated foe. They're not yet out of this world, and there's battles yet to be fought. But the power from God for us now in these battles is a resurrection power now that's available to us to live and die for the glory of Christ. So for us, as we, as we understand and as we appropriate this, uh, this resurrection power now, we think about, I'm not sure for you, but for marriages and for jobs and for family and thinking about that. And for you, it might be a paradigm shift. That for so long, when you hit a wall or you hit a barrier or you come across something, that is, is very, very challenging. And oftentimes your, your default mode is to think the negative, that things will never change. But this, but this, but this, if, if, if. And we have these sort of self-excuses. And maybe for once, just to look at what Paul is claiming here, is what is available to you and I, you and I in Christ Jesus. This same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms and placed him over all authority, over all powers and dominion, is available to you right now. Right now. When I think about that, and when it comes to the challenges of my life, 
it's, it's like all of a sudden I just have a total, total different point of view. I, then I see how small this issue is and how God can change it. I look at a, a circumstance or a challenge and realize the greatness of God's power, and it seems so small in comparison to what God can do in Christ in my life. Lastly, God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Read that one more time. God has put all things under the authority. All things. Not some things. Not a few things. All things. Under the authority of Christ. And has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, first of all, that the risen Jesus Christ is head over all things. Head. Implying authority and conscious, active rule over all history, all human beings, all demonic powers, all disease, disability, all nature, weather, hurricanes, lightning bolts, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, global warming. All businesses and industry are under his authority. Healthcare, sports, inventions, social media, military might, governments, chiefs, kings, presidents, religions, universities, solar systems, stars, galaxies, molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles, and 10,000 things that no man has yet discovered. Jesus Christ is head over all things. That is the claim that Paul is making right here. It's unbelievable. Jesus is now head over them all, conscious, active, authoritative ruler. And with that power and with that authority, for us, as the body of Christ called Maple Grove Covenant Church, he is our leader. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King, and he is our friend. In other words, this power that's mentioned in verse 19 is toward us. It's not like we're a side issue. It's not like you and I are, are an addendum. It's toward us, this power, resurrection power, is toward us. It's available to us. That things can change. Things can change. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks so much for your scriptures. And for us as a church to um, ascertain and understand the staggering claim uh, for what is ours in Christ Jesus. That it's not merely a transaction. It's not merely just some um, peace of mind in believing in Jesus Christ. That it has real implications in our lives. That things can change. So God, I pray for each person here that when we run up against a wall, when we face challenges that we would not give in to the excuse, but things will never change. Instead, we'll take our eyes off those things and put our eyes on Ephesians 1, 19 through 22 and to believe. To believe in this resurrection power now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.